This is Event Masters. Behind the scenes stories, experiences, and lessons shared by the world's leading event experts. Hosted by Christian Napier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Event Masters. And here today with us is a true master of events with over 30 years of experience. We're going to get into the bio shortly. It's Derek Salisbury. Derek, how you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an honor to have you on. And you must be joining us from a very unique location because you've got some artistic scribbles and pine mm-hmm. trees behind <laughs> you. So where are you? where are you joining us from? I'm actually at my parents' house in upstate New York, and I came to visit them after doing some business here in the United States. And uh, and my niece uh, decided to welcome her uncle uh, back into the U.S., so she drew me a nice little drawing to welcome me in the background. And at my parents' house, it's always Christmas, so that's why you have a little bit of the pine Christmas trees in the background. So <laughs> it's always comforting to come back to your homestead and uh, be welcomed by uh, nieces and nephews who don't care what you do for a living. They just happy you're home. <laughs> They're just hap- happy their uncle is home. And and yep. uh, where are you coming from? Because, uh, you know, I've been kind of following you on LinkedIn, not in a <laughs> weird way, but, you yep. know, I see what you're doing. And and uh, you had recently just uh, delivered the uh, Special Olympics uh, in Berlin. Is that right? Yeah, we were just in the Special Olympic World Games Berlin. Uh, that was a big uh, quarterly uh, events going on for the summer summer event and uh, we were there for actually with our, our TPT hub uh, software fleet management and transportation management software is being utilized there for over a year and a half first under national games in 2022 and then 23 on the world games so we were there for a bit uh, we also our operations for our company is based in Dubai so we split time between Dubai and in Turkey and in the states and in Europe so it's basically wherever the uh, plane takes me, and that's kind of my <laughs> where I rest my head uh, around the world uh, day. But right now, currently, what I'm talking to you is from the states. Wow. Okay. So you've got stories galore. You've got a magical voice to share those stories as well, both in written form as well as your 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 voice itself. I mean, this is fantastic. But uh, you know, your three things uh, articles that you've pushed uh, out on LinkedIn in the past, uh, mm-hmm. super super entertaining and insightful. I really appreciate you sharing those stories. So here's the bio, folks. For those of you, you know, if you're one of five people in the event industry who don't know Derek yet, here's 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 the scoop, right? Okay, I'm looking at my notes. Respected event and transport management consultant with more than 30 years of experience in this crazy world of sports and major events. Mm-hmm. Uh, been involved in 11 Olympic and Paralympic Games, uh, seven in a transportation capacity. Uh, served as FIFA venue manager for the FIFA World Cup that was held in Russia in 2018. Been a consultant forever to international federations, national Olympic committees, uh, GD2 Global, and you are one of the managing partners of the company that you just mentioned a moment ago, TPT Hub, an industry leader in efficient, sustainable event management system software. You've managed uh, transportation event operations for the largest events in the world because you don't get bigger than Olympic Games and World Cups and FIFA World Cups. Uh, and you are a well-sought-after consultant in this space, as I can attest. And it's an honor to have you join us here today, Derek. I'm, I'm so thrilled that you are able to make time for us. 
Well, the feeling's mutual, Christian, because you two are the unsung hero behind the scenes, like a lot of us are in the events business. So uh, it's, a, it's a mutual admiration society here on the, on the, on the call here today. <laughs> well, I'm so excited. Uh, thank you so much, Derek. And I'm so excited to have you on. I remember it was three years ago when uh, we had you on the Salt Lake 2002 retrospective, <laughs> looking back at the Salt Lake 2002 games. I remember today the story that you shared about the torch, you're giving your mother, your parents, the torch, they had it there in the wall, the closing or the opening ceremony airing uh, the pride that your parents felt because of your involvement in the, in that iconic event. Uh, yeah. It was really moving and emotional. So I'm super excited to, to hear the stories that you have today. I, I sent through a list of a bunch of categories. You ticked sure. off some boxes or some areas that you wanted to focus on. And uh, so we'll go through some of those, but before we get into those specific areas, perhaps you can, you can, you can tell us how you got involved in this weird industry in the first place. You know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, the, the Grateful Dead said it best. It's been a long, strange trip, you know? And so, you know, it's, uh, it started here, ironically, where I'm at in, in upstate New York, in the Syracuse, New York area where I grew up and uh, started volunteering with sporting events back in the, in the early 80s, uh, thanks to my brother, Vince, and got involved in the event side. And then that kind of led to my University of Oswego State in upstate New York and did my internship in Walt Disney World in Orlando and the college program and started working in the theme parks and then worked on in the marketing department at Disney uh, World and uh, the Hollywood Studios grand opening team back in 89. And then that's where it really caught my wind of really wanting to do events. Graduated, got sick of shoveling snow in here in upstate New York because we get a little bit of it here of lake effect snow. So uh, moved down to Orlando, Florida. And while I was there, met up with uh, some folks I'll be talking about in a little bit uh, in terms of uh, working on the plannings for FIFA World Cup 94 that Orlando was one of the host cities. And then also we worked together with a, a group of folks to develop now what's called uh, Great Orlando Sports Commission. Uh, back then it was the Orlando Area Sports Commission and kind of helped create my own job, and which has led me to being event directors and event planners. And that was kind of laid the groundwork of escalating to where I am. And so, you know, go 30 plus years later and here we are. So it's kind of a been a long, strange, surreptitious way of getting to doing jobs that no one else wanted to do and just learning from the best people in the business. And, uh, and that's kind of led to me uh, to being here. So it's, it's, so I'll kind of elaborate a little bit more on some of the stories I'll tell, but uh, that kind of is a short version, Cliff Notes version of how I got here. <laughs> well, that's really, really interesting. And I want to talk about those mentors and those people that uh, really helped you along the path. Before we get into that, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that you you got into this very, very early on, like when you were still in school and college and studying and, and you were volunteering for events. So it just sounds to me like this was just something that you wanted to do for a long time. And there are other people like me. I just kind of tripped over something and fell mm -hmm. into it. Uh, and then once I fell into it, I kind of liked it and didn't really make a huge effort to get out of it. But uh, yeah. uh when was it that you decided, hey, you know what, this could actually be a great career for me? I think I think it was just, uh, you know, believe it or not, I, I grew up in a household of seven kids, and my mom was the master planner of our destiny every day. And so I think I kind of 
saw a lot of that. And I thought that that was always a fun thing to do because you always saw an end result of planning a party or planning a family reunion or doing things, taking seven kids in a van down to Florida, um, which is a Herculean feat in its own right. So, you know, that was kind of where the impetus kind of started. And then we were always taught to be kind of giving back. And so that was kind of the emphasis of, of being involved in the event world at a younger age in my teenage years and learning the ropes of, you know, picking up garbage at the IRA rowing championships. that used to be on Lake Onondaga Lake here in Syracuse and and just big events, small events, you know, just learning the ropes and, and cutting my teeth, as they say there. And so that kind of um, kind of led that kind of interest in that side of it. So, you know, I thought I was going to be the next computer programmer back in the 80s when I started University of Oswego State. And then I just kind of, my brother kind of said, that's not for you. It's marketing's more your thing, business. And so that was where it really, really kind of took hold in that terms of trying to trying to find what it was I wanted to do. You know, and then once I kind of understood that events was kind of the thing and literally Disney galvanized that uh, in my mindset, because just being a part of a grand opening of a major theme park for a major multi-billion dollar corporation uh, really opened my eyes in terms of the impact that you can make um, just on the littlest things, because I wasn't uh, managing, helping to manage the foreign media coming to cover the grand opening and all that Disney spent, you know, over $30 million and then they recouped that cost within four days just because of the promotions that they received from the media and exposure on that. So that kind of opened my eyes like that's this is really what I want to do. And I became very focused when I came back from that and graduating and then eventually getting down to Orlando to work on one of the biggest sporting events in the world and to be involved with the people who who really rolled the dice and took a chance to kind of bring the biggest event to that community, which isn't really known as a, a soccer or football community. Um, so those were the kind of impetuses that it took for me to kind of learn step-by-step uh, step and be patient. And I really didn't have a lot of patience back in those days, as many friends of mine can tell you, um, but that's that was learned. And those were the things that kind of the building blocks that kind of led me to get to at least to a point where I could at least hold on my own and hold my own against some uh, peers in the industry who really did have some really great experience. And I messed up a lot. I failed a lot and made stupid mistakes. But fortunately, I was surrounded by a group of people who weren't afraid of people who made mistakes. I actually encouraged it because that's the only way you're going to move things forward. Well, why don't we talk about some of those people then? Uh, you you already talked about your mom. Mom's always right, as uh, they say, and uh, <laughs> and and you know she it was just kind of in your blood uh, to to do this, yeah. as you mentioned. But you yeah. know, who were some of these mentors, these people that you worked with, particularly early on in your career, who really influenced the direction of your career and your life? Yeah, well, obviously you start with your parents because they're the ones who believe in you even when you don't even believe in yourself, right? And so obviously they owned a photocopier business uh, back when thermal copiers were big. They started in the early 70s called Eastern Copy Products in Syracuse. And they went and grew that business up over the decades and of owning it. But when you work in a family business, you're always doing things for the business. 
So while other friends were out playing outside, we were stuffing envelopes for business shows. And remember, there's no internet or things like that back in the day. And it was just old school hard work. And you had to go clean copiers and they had to mend a copy division. We'd go collect coins from copiers and clean the machines and do inventory. And everybody had their part to play uh, within the business. So that was where we learned. I learned a lot of business acumen from my parents because, you know, you want a roof over your head, you go to work for the family and you, you make it happen. And so that kind of was the, the basis for my parents just really being huge mentors of, of what I was doing. And then, you know, one of my siblings, you know, uh, Terry, my oldest sister, she went to get her master's at Columbia University and became one of the first uh, female marketing directors with DuPont uh, Corporation. And so, you know, in the 80s, it was it was kind of a bit of a go. It was a bit of a, you know, a trying time to be in that industry as a woman and work your way up to that level. And then just hearing her stories of how she had to overcome a lot of adversity and getting into where, you know, she got to go and really put in my head in terms of don't ever give up. You know, that sometimes things may not be going your way, but you got to keep pushing through that. You know, and she always said the first time through the brick wall is always going to be painful, but you got to do it. So, so in the familial sense, that's kind of where the mentors that I kind of had to look into. And then obviously, as I progressed through the industry, I had a, a great uh, director of the Syracuse Sports Corporation. His name was Andy Jugan, and he was the former track and field coach at Syracuse University. And he was a guy who opened the internship window up and allowed volunteers to come in. And he taught me a ton of things. He was rough and gruff and always had an unlit cigar in his mouth sometimes. But, you know, he was a type of guy where, you know, you're going to learn something every day. You may not notice it, but you'll figure some things out each day that you're a part of it and how it can help build this community into more prosperous thing by using sports as a way to bring economic impact to your community. So that was the impetus in my head that kind of helped me understand this whole not-for-profit side of things in the events business that really wasn't known about. You know, all you have always ever heard about was the professional ranks. And so that kind of led to that progression. Uh, and then when I got down to Orlando, where I literally didn't know anybody uh, after I grad graduated and met the people who bid on and got the World Cup there, and they started, and their names are Joni Sherman, Charlie Williams, um, and they're the two who kind of kind of said, you know, I walked in their office, I'm like, hi, I met you guys in New York City eight months ago, and here I am, I'm here to volunteer, I'm here to help, and so they said, there's a desk, here's a phone book, start calling people to promote the World Cup and the hosting the world in our community, and so they kind of took a chance on this kid from upstate New York that didn't, didn't really know much about a lot. I thought I knew a lot because I did the stuff with Disney. and But, you know, they constantly taught me things about how to navigate through um, a challenging thing. Because when you think about it, Orlando at that time, it was football town. You know, as I learned working in with one of the gentlemen in the state of Florida on the sports commission side, he goes, Derek, there's three seasons in the state of Florida. There's recruiting season, there's spring football season, and there's football season. And anything else that happens on a Saturday, 
No one else cares about it. So you can bring all these amateur events in the world there. Ain't no one going to pay attention to it. And so that was a kind of eye-opening thing because it was. And here we were in starting the sports commission that was trying to bring amateur sporting events to the Central Florida area for economic impact. And it was in, you know, it was, you know, field hockey national championships, indoor volleyball championships, you know, powerboat racing you know, uh, you know, triathlons, you know, the non-huge revenue type of sports. But we learned very quickly from a consultant from the Indianapolis Sports Corporation. She said, Orlando is a big convention town. But she said, the only thing that differences between conventions and sporting events, instead of meeting, our people are competing. But they still need a hotel room. They still need to rent cars. They need restaurants. They need entertainment. They do everything a convention person does, but the venues are a little bit different. And so that was a galvanizing point that Julie, uh, um, Joni, and, and Charlie and I kind of really rallied around that mindset. And we really said, you know what? Everybody wants to come to Central Florida for their sporting events. We just have to give them a reason why. And that was the impetus and the mindset that drove us in terms of creating a vision statement which was we wanted to bring the Olympics to Orlando. That was kind of a vision. But then the mission was making a difference in the community, improving the quality of life and bringing economic impact to the Central Florida area. So Joni and Charlie really shaped my direction in terms of, of just put your blinders on. We'll run, we'll run off shots for you to kind of keep people at bay so you can focus on the bids and focus on the event management and focus on what you need to do to make these events successful because obviously we had politicians involved and we had all these things involved in terms of that which i'll touch on in a little bit so joni and charlie were just kind of those keys to me and then once i got done with the sports commission i hooked up with our mutual friend in business tony vetrano uh, who kind of wanted to be this uh, under the event transportation kind of guru of planning transport around events Again, in the early 90s, very niche type of thing that wasn't a thing back then. It always was needed because we always say it all begins with transport. You can have the best event inside the arena or wherever it may be, but if it takes forever to get there and get back, how successful was that event? So Tony was kind of the guy that kind of took me under his wing when I was done with the sports commission. He's like, I want to grow my company. And so he brought on a, a person by the name of uh, Mike Witte, who you also know as well from our Olympic days. And kind of, we all kind of just pushed the envelope forward and trying to build up this event transportation concept and things. And then obviously they were involved in the 96 Olympics. And then Tony was involved the World Cup and 94 and then that kind of evolution of the olympic experience going up to salt lake city and then when salt lake city was done pushing that into the nfl with doing transport and managing that for the super bowls for the nfl and that we kind of all kind of followed that tony's lead on what and how things were and then mike witty kind of bringing his uh, mindset in terms of how venue operations should be interacting with transportation operations and really creating this whole thing called the venue transportation operation plan, which is normal for now. But back then it was again, a, a, a trend setting kind of thing that no one was really kind of focusing on. So again, working with those people and just 
thinking differently, as as Steve Jobs always said about Apple. And so those are kind of the people that mentored me and kind of got me and still get me through a lot of the, the things that I've gone on to do in terms of the, the events I've been a part of, in terms of how to handle yourself in business, especially in the events world. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting just looking at the history that you've had in events is you've worked with a lot of different kinds of organizations that have a that have many different uh management styles. You know, all over the world it can be different, it can be very flat, it can be very hierarchical. Uh you have many stakeholders involved. But in order for this to work, it, it requires a team. And I know you've got some stories that you want to share about teamwork and leadership. So why don't we dive into those? Sure. Uh, you know, obviously the biggest teamwork concept that you can be a part of is is the big events, right? You know, the small events have that because it's more localized. And I got to experience that on a multitude of different levels in terms of Teaching, you know, was part of World Cup coming into Orlando. We started a uh, program, Joni, Charlie, and myself, and a bunch of others, uh, Legacy Soccer. And that was going into the inner city or inner country areas outside of the city uh, to expose kids to the sport of soccer. And so when I was there, we partnered with the YMCA on this. And one of the things that we did with all those uh, inner city and inner country kids is we basically were teaching them you know, how to work as a team and how to uh, be a good teammate and how to learn to pass and share and share and everything. So it's all a conceptual thing. And I always tell business leaders, some of the most interesting moments I had was teaching these uh, six to 12 year olds the sport of soccer and, and really just not using your surrounding as an excuse of why you can't succeed. And at the end of the day, all that these kids wanted at the end of the practice was to show that they were appreciated, that they did well, and that they that sport, that soccer was a fun sport, right? And so that's what employees and staff always want. They want to be appreciated. They want to know that they're loved and appreciated and that they're doing well, right? And so that type of teamwork concept was kind of evolved out of that coaching stuff. And then that kind of evolved into... Um, you know, once we got up to the Olympic level, and obviously I learned that at Disney, Disney's a total team concept approach. I mean, you know, when you work for Mickey Mouse, you know, it's all about customer service. It's all about working together as a team to make people feel a certain way so that they have a feeling and experience that they couldn't have anywhere else. And that when they leave, they're like, that was money well invested so that we had a great experience and that years later down the road from a long-term vision perspective if i'm going on holiday again i want to go back to disney because i want to feel that way so that type of disney concept mixed with the stuff that i was learning from all these different mentors i just mentioned uh really led to into the olympic side and so obviously when you're dealing on the olympics it's a total team concept and christian you know this as well as anybody and the people that are on your uh, podcast as well, it's, you can't do it alone. You know, there's 15, 16 departments under one venue and you all are reliant on each other. If one isn't pulling their weight, then the, the others may suffer on that. So you really learn pretty quickly the art of detente because you're not going to win every battle and on that side. So 
it's um it's something that I always go into the mindset when I go into the Olympic movement side is whether you're working in transport like I have or in broadcast like I have or with the NOC, with Team USA, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committees, or with the International Olympic Committee, um, you're really just looking at and trying to understand how we can make things work for everybody. It's not going to be pleasant sometimes, and sometimes you're going to have disagreements with each other. But I guess me growing up with uh, six other siblings in the same house and sharing one bathroom, you learn real quick about how you work together as a team to accomplish getting ready just in the morning. So that kind of led into the Olympic side where you, 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 you have to be a student of the game, as I say. And you have to, when you go into these Olympic games, like I have over 11 times, is you have to assess, you have to be able to assess the situation very quickly and understand who does what, who's responsible, what, who are the decision makers, where, how far can you take things? How far can the people that are working under you take things? And then you may have to take it to the next level because they can only take it this far because of cultural differences. And they aren't, if they go up too high, as I always say, they poke their head above the sand, it may not be well, um, uh, <laughs> something will happen if you stick your head above the sand. So that's where you have to learn very quickly the nuances of the localizations of where you're at. And, and you know, the way they do things in the United States is not the way that they do things in England. It's not the way they do things in Beijing, China. It's not the way that they do things in Torino, Italy. There's totally different mindsets everywhere you go and you have to be a chameleon to basically adapt to these these surroundings in a very quick manner and you learn you learn very quick and you get like as like my grandfather always said you know he's a carpenter he goes you learn very quickly how to pound nails back in the boards right and so sometimes you are the nail that's getting hammered back into the boards and sometimes you are the hammer that's hammering things back in the boards so you got to understand uh, very quickly of, of what's going on out there in the marketplace. So from the Olympic standpoint, you know, I, I a couple of stories in terms of that, in terms of teamwork and leadership stuff, you know, for the Winter Olympics after Salt Lake Games, I kind of got my um, uh, professional kind of uh, understanding is working with the meddling athlete transport and for victory ceremonies transport as they call it. So it's getting all the gold, silver, and bronze meddling athletes from their venues and competition venues and non-comp venues down to Medals Plaza every every night. Because in the winter games, they wanted to make a made for TV kind of uh, medal ceremony, five or six ceremonies a night. Whereas the summer games, there's just too many of them. So they do in venue ceremonies. So I became pretty adept at that, obviously dealing with the transportation side, working with Tony Vetrano and, and Mike Witte and, and Deb McCandless fails and the whole whole host of others from game day side of things. And um, we developed a concept and an operational mode of doing things. And but the challenge was, is every city I went into, I had to require local staff or I had to bring in my own staff to help understand so we can create a concept of operations of how we manage the transport component because it's the last component of an athlete's journey of their Olympic experience and Olympic and Paralympic experience is getting on that stage to get their medal. So it was my job to you know, develop the transportation operation plan for it and then hire the staff that can come in and help support and implement that. 
So again, you have to go and teach them that that the thing that they're working on is bigger than their own lives. And that's a tough thing to do because there's a lot of motivation because everybody else has other parts of their lives going on. And obviously, you know, they have to see the benefit of why am I going to invest the time and efforts? Now, obviously, people say, well, that's what they're paid for. True. But there's the underlying thing that you always got to be understanding of is what's, what motivates them. What motivates one person may not motivate the other person. But the one thing that I could get them all to agree on is it's all about the athletes. If we focus on the athlete experience and what they experience with our transport system, if we work together as a team, then we help them achieve their final goal. And because we're integrated so closely during the Winter Games with broadcast and venue operations for the Metals Plaza team, and then the International Olympic Committee that does all the briefings in the green rooms before they go on stage, I always taught my teams, I said, we need to learn to work backwards. Meaning, if the stage walk time is at 8.01 in, in p.m., and when that red light goes on OBS's cameras, there better be three athletes going up on stage. But we got to work backwards because what time they need to be in the green room in the back of house? What time they need to be getting to the venue? What time? To, how long does it take them to get through security to get the checkpoints to get their vehicle in? And then how long does it take them to drive from where we're picking them up? What time is their competition in if it's a same day ceremony, a next day ceremony? So there's a lot of moving parts. So there's a lot of things where I would try to buffer some of this, the staff from some of these things. But then they had to dive right in because they know the local language. So if I'm in Russia, you know, I have local staff from Sochi and around Russia that were helping me. If I'm in Pyeongchang, I have local staff or staff from uh, who understand the culture and the dynamics of how to get things done. And so, you know, there, there's constant challenges day in and day out. Sochi, we had, you know, since the um, Vancouver Games, we utilize active duty military to be the drivers and the liaisons. And the liaisons would go into the venue and see Sean White at the finish line, the great US American snowboarder, and say, hi, Sean, I'm your liaison. We're your Uber for the day, and we're gonna take you to wherever you need to go post-event, and then we'll make sure that you get on stage to get your medal each night, right? And so that, the, the, when we had the military involved, there's layers there. So imagine Sochi, when I first meet the commander for Russian military that's helping us out, and we say, you know, hi, really nice to meet you. And it's almost like, I don't like you. So that's how I started off my experience is I have a person whose image of me, it's not, they don't like me because of what I know, it's because of where I'm from. So I learned a long time ago that a lot of times I'm not the one with the problem. Others may be the ones with the problem. Uh, and so I needed to know, now that I heard that, I knew that that would trickle down to the rank and file. So now me and my team had to work hour by hour, day by day, hour by hour, to change, slowly change the mindset of that day by day. And again, getting them to believe is like, you can hate me all you want, but don't hate the athletes that you're serving. And don't hate your country because that's who you're representing. And at the end of the day, it's not on me. I go away after this event's done, but it rests on you because you're here. And so we work to kind of change that mindset through our actions, through how we treated them, 
how we engaged with them in a very positive way and congratulating them and making them feel part of the team. And a lot of times, and this is a tough thing for a lot of people in the events industry, and Christian, you know this very well, is it can't, it can't be your, your idea all the time. Sometime they got to get some ownership in it. And when they get the ownership in it and you let them run and you just kind of cover their back, like I learned from my mentors, they can achieve great things. And they did. And they really made the experience for these athletes paramount. And you suddenly saw that pivot starting to take place, right? And so, you know, everybody, you know, in these days and days talk about Ted Lasso and the Lasso lessons and everything. We were doing that stuff way before Ted Lasso came out. But, but you know, you just do it. It becomes instinctive when you do it so much. And, and again, you make it all about the athletes. That's what really motivates people and gets them to, to deal with taking ownership and leadership. And then when, because if I walk away from the experience and I get all of the glory and they don't, then that's not the way I want things run in an operation because they should be able to go away from this experience saying, not only did I learn a lot, but I experienced something that was bigger than my own life. And I want to do this again, because Christian, you and I know we ain't getting any younger, right? So if we don't start motivating people in the younger demographic who want to come in and who show some interest in it, and we make it as more hard on them or don't make it fun, you know, we constantly hammer them on every mistake they make, you know, we're, we're, we're not helping our industry, right? And so that's where you learn those things as you deal with it. If you don't have a central focus of people to focus on. And again, I'm just giving it from my perspective. There's a million different ways you deal with venue management, which I'll touch on a little bit. Um, and you're dealing with all different levels, clean catering and waste and, and security and event services. And just all of them have their own nuances of how they do it. But at the end of the day, you got to find a purpose of that. And so that was one aspect of, of, of teamwork and leadership that I had. The other one I would just want to share was comes from Pyeongchang uh, 2018. And that was, again, meddling athlete transport and victory ceremonies and dealing with that. But in the third day of our training, again, we had the active duty Korean military supporting our operations and we had volunteer liaisons there. So the drivers were our, our support. But the third day in, um, I come into our, our training tent and uh, it was a huge tent, not even a training tent. It was our operations tent for ceremonies behind the stage at Metals Plaza. And every morning I came at 6 a.m. It was about about minus 10 Fahrenheit and probably minus 20 Celsius in there. And I had to manually turn on the heaters. And I came in. It was our third day of training before uh, before the Olympics, about a week before the Olympics. And then um, I one of my staff comes in, and he's just just a totally drawn down face. And I'm like, what's going on? And he, he, I says, why are you, first, what are you doing here so early? Second, what's going on? And he goes, he died today. And I'm like, who, who died today? And he told us that one of our soldiers that was our driver that just went through training 12 hours before, he died at the housing complex that they put in the, the Korean military in to support the events because they didn't, weren't just supporting us. They were supporting all kinds of operations. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so there is a mishap in terms of him 
dying in terms of, I won't go into details of it, but I mean, it's just something happened at the housing where he died. And so now all of a sudden, because of all the experiences I've had dealing with all these different levels of events, I instantly knew, okay, you and so-and-so need to go to the, uh, need to go to the, the command center where the military guys are and need to go meet with them. The manager of the, uh, of the event management staff came in and I said, you need to go to the mock, the main operations center and find out what the heck's going on with this because they need, I need to find out details of this stuff because I found out that day that President Bach was flying in from the International Olympic Committee that day. And I know the first thing that's going to hit when he hits the ground is what, what about the death that happened with the Korean military on, on here. So I needed to get, so I got in touch with my IOC contacts with the winter division and the comms people just to make them aware this is what's going on. We don't know the full details yet. As I get information, I'll feed it on to you, but Dr. Bach needs to understand what's going to happen. So I would started delegating responsibilities to everybody. And then I started getting on the phones and started working things because I realized one, our training wasn't going to happen. Two, that we needed to deal with the comfort and um, uh, grieving of the military soldiers because that was their friend, that was their buddy. And so we knew that we weren't going to have training. So I needed to contact all of the venue teams who were expecting our drivers to show up for rehearsals and practice, liaising with their security teams, going with their sport managers and all that stuff. So again, the working backwards thing and then really getting everybody into that whole thing. So. When you have this thing, you just kind of go into another zone. You know, sports athletes go into a zone when they're doing their work and their stuff. We have the same thing on the backside of operations is that when there's situations that need immediate attention, you have to focus on, one, what is the situation? Two, who's impacted by that situation? And ultimately, at the end of the day, how do you deal with the people that are dealing with that situation is it grieving is it this that you don't know and that was a massive challenge in terms of leadership because i realized very quickly this could go south on me very quickly but the one thing i always re remind people is that when you have an olympic games or a major event or anything it's like a snowball on top of a hill and once that snowball gets rolling the momentum keeps it going and it doesn't stop and if there's situations, if there's problems, if there's people with attitudes and all that stuff, the snowball doesn't care. It keeps rolling and it's going to consume you in that mix as you go rolling down. And you have to, while that's rolling there and flipping you around, you got to somehow keep your bearings straight and get things sorted out in that so that when it comes down at the end of the, the thing, because eventually it will end the end of the games, the, 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 the TV camera doesn't care about all the stuff that you have to deal with behind the scenes. They're expecting athletes on that stage and all that stuff. Yes, you had something happen to you that was very devastating to your team, but you got to deliver. And so how you have to take your team and kind of one arm around them, consoling them, but keep moving them forward in a, a way that's achieving the goals that you have, that's what you have to do. And that was a hugely challenging time. I don't think I've gone through any big challenge of that in a long, long time. And 
you're impacted by it just because your staff is impacted, but you just got to keep them motivated. You got to like, yes, this was, this happened. It's, it's devastating, but athletes first, we got to push this thing forward. And we did that. And I was very proud of them because at the end of the Paralympic games, when we were done, it was just like, wow. But the growth, you could see the personal growth in people. And you could see again, that, I got something out of this, you know, I learned something from this and, you know, but again, I let them take ownership of that because it was a cultural thing. I couldn't go in there because sometimes they don't want you to be there. They want their own to be in there to work with them on that stuff. And that's where you have to have confidence in the staff that you hire and let them kind of take the lead role in those things. So from a, kind of a teamwork leadership story. I think those are kind of uh, two two ones that kind of pop up. Obviously, FIFA World Cup in and, and 2021, working in Russia, um, that was a massively unique experience because I started playing here in Camillus, New York, soccer, football, when I was eight years old, and I thought I was going to be the next Pele, right? And then to be able to work on FIFA World Cup 94 with my friends and media operations on the field of play and watching, you know, uh, Mexico, Ireland play and Jorge Campos and, you know, all the, all these great players. Uh, I thought that was the tip of the iceberg. But then to go and be selected by FIFA to represent them in venue management capacity, where it was my job to work with the local organizing committee and making sure that the grass in the field of play and the, the, the multi-million dollar corporate build-outs took place and the security elements were there and the practice facilities and the fan festivals and, and the team training facilities and all these things took place at the same, and broadcast operations and all these things. So you really had to, again, have the local team believe in that you're there for them. You know, you're not there to to just be, you know, you have to do this. It's like, what do we need to do to make our venue successful? And then one of the things that one of the team managers told, one of the managers of the a functional area told me, he goes, Derek, what was different about you was he goes, you ask this every day, how can I help you? Because a lot of times it's, it's management isn't, doesn't, it's not that they want to be supportive. They just don't think about that, you know? And I think that made a difference because it showed that I, I really cared about what challenges, because I know what challenges they're dealing with, because I know who was funding that event and the challenges they had to overcome on a daily basis. And again, like I talked about earlier, is that as management, sometimes staff from in foreign areas can only take it to a certain level. And you have to take that mantle, kind of that handoff in track and field athletics and take it to the next step and help them with their situation and help them get that situation solved because their intentions are good, but they know their limits and they know that you have the capacity to help them on that secondary thing to get it done. And, and again, that's coming back and looking at a teamwork. I couldn't, I couldn't do it by myself. There's no way. And I, I have to, you have to understand that is like, you know, don't try to be the hero all the time. And that's kind of the, the tan amounts of leadership that I've learned and teamwork that I learned. Again, all those successive things led to that moment of that. 
And so that's kind of a few stories in terms of the teamwork and things like that, that I kind of learned over the decades. Well, I really appreciate you sharing those stories, Derek, and they are super impactful. Uh, you mentioned that the situation that you faced in Pyeongchang was an incredibly challenging one. And that actually takes me to my next uh, questions, which is uh, these big challenges. In the area yeah. of transport, you have challenges just due to the nature of the city or the country that you're in. And, uh, you know, how the how the master plan is laid out, which could result in various, uh, you know, distances and travel times, plus the, you know, the state of the infrastructure that's already there, plus the ability sure. to source uh, talent like the drivers, like you talked about, uh, you know, sourcing yeah. from military and other places. Plus weather, uh, you talked about the extreme cold in Pyeongchang uh, yeah. and you know, that can wreak havoc on, on transport, not just from the fact that, oh, you got to have a lot of snow removal, but also from the fact that you may have competitions delayed, which then impacts everything else with the transport schedule and so on and so forth. Yeah. To, uh, in Pyeongchang, we had the norovirus, right, which uh, yeah. caused all kinds of problems. And then we had COVID that came up with Tokyo and Beijing and, yeah. and other events. And so you have all these different kinds of challenges that you face throughout your career, not just organizationally, but geographically, uh, uh, meteorologically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> medically. Uh, so yeah. why don't you tell us a few of the stories about some of these incredible challenges that you faced and how you worked to overcome them? Yeah, I, I, I'll go back to Pyeongchang and just a kind of a little bit of a, a, a big challenge is it was a transition between Olympic and Paralympics. And so um, that's kind of where, you know, you, get, you want to give your staff a couple of days off, just kind of catch their breath and kind of like take a break from everything. But me, I just kind of have to deal with all the other work that I have to do on the organizing committee side. Um, and I woke up and I forget it was the night before there's heavy winds and, and they had gotten, you know, I'd say about, probably about six inches of snow and how many centimeters, 10 centimeters, something like that of snow. Um, so I go walking up to our, our back of house ceremonies tent and I look and it collapsed. Like the whole thing collapsed and inside were all of our computers, all our files, all of our, our everything. <laughs> I mean, it was just, I walk up there and I'm like, holy blank. And I'm like, so of course, first thing I do, get on the phone. I'm calling my team, come into the office. You ain't going home right now. I called up venue management and I told them, I said, I told you this tent was not safe. And I had told them that prior. And then, you know, and then you had to call the engineers, you know, cause Populous was doing the overlays and you had to get the overlay people in. And the thing is, is again, now the clock's ticking, right? Because Paralympics are coming up. We've got training going on cause we have to train our drivers how to deal with uh, athletes with disabilities. And now we've got to do these things. And now all of a sudden, what's the next steps? And how are we going to transition for this? Not only us, but our friends and ceremonies and all the other departments that were working in this tent. And so we had to work very quickly and they had to get a crane to come up and then they had engineers going to say it was safe for you to go walk in and take your stuff out and get your things out. And then we're like, well, where are we going to work? So for the time being, we went to our local uh, chicken shack restaurant right near the metal ceremonies area, worked out of there for, you know, a bit. And then uh, and then finally they relocated trailers in the parking lot that parked all my meddling athlete vehicles. 
And they're like, you got to figure out a place to go put these things. So again, working with venue management and how we do all this. And then they had to bring in the internet and power cables and all that stuff. And then they had to remove that tent within four and a half days because now where the tent used to be would now be the new parking for my victory ceremonies transport vehicles. So there's all these things that just you're working 15, 16, 17 hour days and it's just nonstop. And it's just, it just, it was, again, that snowball, it was, it was this massive avalanche. Forget about the snowfall. It was just an avalanche that kind of tested your patience. But again, your staff feeds off of you. And if you're in a panic mode, they're going to be in a panic mode. So you had to be calm. You had to be decisive. You had to give direction in a very, not forceful way, but a very direct way and help them, everybody working together to get that challenge cleared out of the way and dealt with. And so it was hugely impactful and a massive learning lesson for me on top of just what we dealt with in the beginning of the Olympics, but now this transition time. So it's, again, it's, it's about focusing. It's about understanding your roles and responsibilities and then understand who are the people who can help you get through that challenge. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times it's not your people in the industry. It's people like yourself or people, event people that, you know, you who have gone through some heroic challenges like yourself in the past. And like, how do you deal with this? Or can you just listen? I just need to vent or I just need to explain the situation and tell me where, what I need to be looking at. What am I missing? And all that stuff. So you can't, you have to rely on others to help support you and get you through these challenges because if not, you'll go, you'll go crazy, you know, and it's just, it's just, uh, that was a, a massive challenge in terms of on the Olympic side. I mean, FIFA World Cup side, there's challenges every day. We had Confederations Cup in 2017, and then we had FIFA World Cup in 2018. You know, we had challenges where workers wouldn't show up to work. and we're two weeks out and we don't have our sponsor build outs done. We have a contractor that was not cooperative in terms of things and not forcing their workers to show up. And I'd call up to my counterpart in Moscow, like, Hey, how many workers you got showing up today? And she'd be like, I got two. And I'm like, Ooh, I got three. And it'd be like in a warped way, a competition of who had more workers show up that day. And so, you know, and it's just like, you're trying to deliver this biggest event and you're talking to your FIFA managers and like, we need help. <laughs> We're, we got a thing to build out and, you know, I'm doing what I can, but, you know, it's just, again, getting everybody to understand about the impact that this event has, but there's certain things and it's politics and I can't interfere with that. It has to work its way through the system to kind of get it there organically. Sometimes um, you make, you make people aware of it. It's an issue. It goes on the issue register. And then it's, but it's not as quick as you want it to go. It's how quick they want it to go. And then how things surreptitiously get done. And then suddenly you wake up the next day and boom, it's done. People come out of the woodwork, they build stuff, it happens, and then the problem goes away. So you have to have a thick skin and a strong heart and a lot of Tylenol or Panadol, as they say overseas. <laughs> 
and sometimes a little bit of bourbon helps, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's just, yeah, it's just that that was a challenge. And then I, I know early on when I, I went to Orlando and we were trying to start the Central Florida Sports Commission. And remember, I said that, you know, we weren't very welcomed because we were trying to bring amateur sporting events to the good old boy American football. This is a football town. And we had to convince the Tourist Development Commission to give us monies from the um, pool of money that they collect off of room taxes in every uh, county in Central Florida. To give you an example, Orange County at that time was bringing $40 million a year off of bed taxes. But they would use that to retire the debt on the expanded convention center, the Orlando Magic Arena, uh, upgrades to the Florida Citrus Bowl, the American Football Stadium that hosted World Cup in 94. So we asked for like the amount of money that, uh, from each county um, that they make in about an hour out of each day. And we tried to show them that amateur sports is a big business and has potential for that. But it was a, a huge battle for Joni and Charlie and, and our board of directors to kind of push through to these community leaders that controlled the purse strings to give us a chance. And so to their credit, they did. And they said, all right, we'll give you $250,000 of funding each year for two years. That's it. So you suddenly become, and we're only a staff of three, my boss, Charlie, myself, and an assistant, Sharon, and, and sink or swim. So we just started writing bids and getting things out. And we never had an inventory of what sports venues were in Central Florida. So we had to go out and measure fields or call park and recreation departments and try to put together a book because Atlanta Olympics in 96 and 93, they said, hey, do you have a book on your training facilities so we can promote these to international teams coming to train prior to the Atlanta Games? And we all looked around and like, no, but we'll get one. And we had to go and do it. And because no one else is going to do it. It's like my, my parents always told us, you know, the clothes don't on the floor don't clean themselves. The dishes in the sink don't clean themselves. So if you got to do it, do it. And so we went out and did it while we were bidding on these events. And we're like USA Volleyball. Well, we want to do 25 indoor volleyball courts. Can we use your convention center? The convention center, they do conventions. They've never done indoor volleyball before. But we showed them their plans and we're like, okay, let's figure it out together. So, you, you know, you got to sell people on on your mission and on what your purpose is and if it's true and it's intent because and world cup helped with that because the economic impact with that was going to be about 100 million dollars for 30 days of the world cup 94 in orlando and so that helped drive a little bit but when you got two years as your lifeline you become very focused very quickly and you just work all the time and it's a huge challenge because you sacrifice your personal life for your professional life. And that's not easy. And what do you mean you got to work weekends, you know, 39 weekends out of the year? Are you crazy? 60 hours a week? Are you nuts? Well, the Taekwondo championships don't run themselves, you know, and, and you know, USA Volleyball stuff doesn't, the courts don't build themselves, you know, the marketing and the promotion of all these things. So all these layers and layers of challenges that we had. But we were very proud because in the first year, we bid on 12 events and landed nine, including the Olympic football matches in Atlanta. They needed four remote sites for the preliminaries. And we worked with our partners at Florida Citrus Sports, and we got that when we won that bid. 
So Orange County, for instance, gave us $75,000 in their tourist development fund. In the first year, we returned $39 million in economic impact. So that opened their eyes like, whoa, you know, and so that was our motivation because now we're like, okay, we got their attention, but now we got it. But when we're telling them, but they're not happening this year, they're happening two years after our funding is done. So you need to have a long-term vision. That's where Joni was and Charlie and others were great at crafting that vision to allow them to see the benefits by taking those tourist tax dollars. Because why? Our athletes were coming, not meet, but to compete. But they're spending monies on gas, which helped increase gas tax revenues for the community. The hotels during quiet times were filled up with athletes. They were eating at restaurants and all these other nuances. And these were just challenges every day because, you know, we had four different counties and with the city of Orlando and four counties or three at the time to kind of, we had to placate them. It's like, okay, you know, down in, um, in Kissimmee, they, they do rodeos and they have great facilities there. Uh, Altamont Springs in Seminole County, they had lakes and tennis areas and, and baseball complex and soccer complexes. Orlando had the big arenas and Lake County had bass fishing and golfing and all the, so you had to learn very quickly of what everybody wanted to get out of you and then how we had to deliver for them. So it was just a massive challenge every day going into the office is how do we serve so many masters and help them achieve the objectives that they want to get out of you? And by the way, they're paying your paycheck and you got a two-year lifeline. So yeah, it was never ending. <laughs> it was just, but you just do it. And then on top of that, you're trying to grow. You know, we went through management changes and we had to deal, I had to deal with all those changes going on. And then we had to deal with growth of bringing people on board and new staff and everybody having their role and responsibilities and everything. But, you know, I was proud of everything I did. I, I was there for five years and raised to the challenge and economic impact events while I was there was about $90 million when I left to the community. And they just celebrated their 30th anniversary, the Great Orlando Sports Commission, and the economic impact in those 30 years is about $1.2 billion. So, wow. so you, you, you look at that, and I was 24 years old when I did that. And, you know, before I was 30 years old, I had done all that, and not by myself. I'm not taking all the credit. You know, there's so many people involved in that things from the staff that worked with me uh, and the managers I had, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, and, and that's something that I said, you know what? We, we took a chance. We overcame massive challenges in the community mindset. You know, Disney went and built a $100 million sports training complex, and they've really reaped the benefits from amateur sports on things like that. So, yeah, those are the two challenges that come to my head in terms of overcoming things and then trying to uh, to meet them head on and, and achieve some some level of success. Well, these are fantastic stories. And and one of my hopes is, is that, uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, we're not getting any younger mm -hmm. and that uh, another generation of uh, leaders will come through and do an even better job than we've done uh, in this crazy yes. space. And so, you know, bef so I want to ask you about that, but before I, before we kind of wrap it up with um, 
you know, the advice to the, to the, to the new generation. Mm -hmm. uh, I want, I don't want to leave anything out. So if you've got other stories there on your list, where like, Oh, Christian, I wanted to talk about this story. Uh, before, before we get to, to our, our, our closing here, uh, I just want to give you one more opportunity to say, Oh yeah, I got another story. Or if we're done, we're, we're good. And, and we can, we can carry on with the advice. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, how do you take, 30 years and try to try to, there's so many stories, uh, but I just think it's, it's anything that you get out of it. And anybody listening to this, it's the people that you work with. I think that's the legacy that I treasure the most is, is the great amount of people around the world that I've had the privilege of sharing this journey with, because it's, it's, you, like I said, you can't do it yourself. And there's so many other people involved from assistants that worked with you, uh, the staff that kind of did everything for you. Um, they're the ones who deserve all the glory. You know, I just, it's always the point person, you know, it's always a lead singer in the band that always gets the, gets the accolades. Right. But it's just, it's, I, you know, I don't even know where to start. I mean, just London Olympics and dealing with broadcast, which, you know, I hadn't done in a long, long time. And my friend Trish Fenton, who you know and is one of talk about an event master, that woman's the event queen. Um, you know, she told me she's like, I'm going to give you the hardest venues to deal with in Central London, and and I told her I says I want to be uncomfortable every day I come to work. You know, she goes, Oh, don't worry, you will. And you know, dealing with uh, on Hyde Park and the lake in Hyde Park, uh, we uh, it was triathlon marathon swim. And OBS, Olympic Broadcast Services, so the TV video feed you all see around the world isn't BBC or NBC Sports. It's I, OBS's uh, feed. But they wanted a, a, um, a sky cam, a rail cam going across the lake to give an overhead perspective of things, um, overhead view of it. So we had one crane that was a 300-foot tall or 150-meter tall crane on one, one Royal Park and a crane in another Royal Park. And he had to deal with the challenges of getting permissions from both Royal Parks to explain this rail cam. Then our, uh, we were told by the Royal Parks, oh, you want to put two like uh, ropes, it wasn't wires, but it was ropes across there that the camera sled rides on. Well, you got to do a, a bird mitigation study on this. And we're like, what? And they're just like, well, two things. One, the swans in the lake there, they're protected by, they're the queen swans. And if you kill a swan, there's a, a law in the books in the 1700s that if you kill a queen swan or king swan, then it's punished by beheading at the Tower of London. So you can't screw with the swans. And I'm like, okay, got that. Note to self, don't screw the swans. But also you got those lines going across. Birds aren't used to that. And so you got to do a bird mitigation study to prove that at previous Olympic Games, there was no bird strikes or bird kills from those being up there. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I took my assistant out there on one cold February morning, and we took stones, and I bought a protractor from the little stationery store. And we started throwing pebbles at the swans to try to get them to fly in the air to get a picture. And I found a formula online that shows the bird flight patterns of a swan and how long it would take to reach the height of that wire. And I did a whole 
bird avionics study, and I submitted it to our sustainability people with OBS's birds mitigation study. And she's like, what's this? I'm like, well, it's the bird mitigation study that Royal Parks want, and this is a bird avionics study I did. She's like, I can't submit this. And I'm like, why? She goes, you're not a scientist. This doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so, you know, these are the things that, you know, they don't teach you in textbooks. You can't, you know, you can't learn it anywhere else but by just doing it. But it's just little things like that where every day it was, you know, at the beach, a beach volleyball in Queens Horse, Queens Horse Parade, you know, the park there by uh, the Queens Parade area. And I got, you know, our manager got called in that basically 10 Downing Street, their, their White House in London, had concerns about this camera because it was a beauty shop camera that could get the uh, London Eye, Ferris Wheel, Big Ben, and the Thames and the Sunrise and all that stuff. Well, they were concerned about that camera because right behind one of the stands is 10 Downing Street. And they says, does that camera do a zoom? And I says, well, it can go 360 degrees of zoom. And they said, oh, well, we have concerns with that camera. So you have to sign an agreement basically saying that you aren't going to zoom into the prime minister's residence and see him in his knickers. I'm like, you're serious, right? And they're like, oh, we're dead serious. And I'm like, okay. So we had to put a letter together that we wouldn't zoom the camera in the knickers. And then Buckingham Palace like, Oh, that camera's high enough. That can zoom into Buckingham Palace too, can it? So we had to do a for bike. So I mean, just things that you just like. Just I tell people in the sports business and the events business, and a lot of people listening to this and watching this can understand. I always say, just when you think you've seen it, done it, heard it, or experienced it, you haven't. That's the events business because, and it's really any business, but more prevalent in the events business because. Lord knows, you know, the, the reason we're putting that camera up there is not for the beauty shops, for the global audience. It's to see the prime minister in his knickers. <laughs> so anyways, that's kind of uh, uh, some of the stories. And I could go on for days and all your people you're going to have on have stories, especially in the events business, about things that you experience. But I wouldn't trade any of them for the world. They, they, they made me who I am. And it's just I, I can't believe I get paid to do it. Right. And it's just, uh, and that's just leading to, oops, oh, and there you go. And Siri even thinks I'm serious. So, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, and that, all that stuff has led to working with my partners and developing our TPT Hub software for the events industry and helping take a laborious, task-heavy thing in letting the tool do the work and bringing technology to bear that simplifies the planning of fleet management, logistics management, arrivals and departures, VAT parking permit management, you know, guest management services. These are all the things that we're working on to help bring taking those 35 plus years experience and putting it into a system that kind of helps support all the people that we've worked with and just making them work smarter, not harder. And that you talk about pivot of mission is it was always for me, it was always athletes first experience of staff and delivering. And now it's taking all that mindset and putting it into technology. Now we're right now, the pivot is happening in the events industry where if you're with a technology wave, you're going to benefit from it. If you're behind it, 
you're going to be left behind. And there's just so many nuances to it. You know, we have our one specialty, which is kind of transport fleet operations, VAP, back of house logistics stuff. And our friends at, you know, and one group has things that incident management system, another has registration accommodations and accreditation side. And so, and there's overlays, uh, technologies out there that are going on. So there's all these things now that are being digitized to bring things smarter uh, in terms of how you work. And the challenge is, is that, you know, we're talking to one potential client now, we have 30 events, we run them on spreadsheets. And and nowadays it's like, how, you know? And it's just like, they, they lose their minds now. But I used to be that person. Unfortunately, I met, you know, my, my business partners uh, uh, and they had the vision of how we could do it and program to it. And, and they're, they're, they're my rock stars now because they're the ones who are kind of taking, you know, all this, this stuff and trying to figure out solutions to very complex situations and try to simplify it with technology. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, back in the day, it was done on whiteboards, paper, and spreadsheets, and now yeah. it's evolved into something else. And for you and in your area of expertise, you mm -hmm. have a very broad expertise in events, but you've got this real deep specialization in transport. You've uh, you've uh, formed this TPT hub uh, entity, and you are now helping events across the globe uh, to really uh, maximize the efficiencies uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and develop uh, plans that are going to really uh, you know drive uh, and enable the appropriate service levels uh, so you know if people want to learn more about tpt hub the work that you're doing uh the the ways that you and or tpt hub might be able to help them in the planning and the operation of their events, what's the best way for people to reach out to you and connect with you? Well, they can connect with me via our uh, website at tpthub.com. Uh, they can reach me at my email at uh, D as in dog, S as in Sam, at tpthub.com. Uh, they can reach us there. And obviously on, uh, on our website and on um, uh, LinkedIn, I do my things I've learned, kind of writings of things I've learned as I kind of explain some of the stuff today, I kind of share my insights uh, of the business side of things. Obviously, LinkedIn on TPT Hub on LinkedIn and then myself, Derek Salisbury at LinkedIn as well. So, you know, I try to engage people to help them understand more about what we're trying to do as a company and broaden their um, opportunities to use technology and to make them better. Um, and also, but also to share insights because it's, it's, you know, doing things like this with you is so helpful because it just broadcasts a message out there that, you know, there's so many different ways. I'm the ways I explain today are the ways that I've done things. I always learn from all these people around the world that I've worked with so many things. If you stop learning, you're never going to make it. So, uh, so that's where I just uh, I'm help. I want to help others out. So, if any of the students out there that may be listening to this or anybody, feel free to reach out. We're always want to be helpful to you, no matter if it has anything to do with business. 
um, that's always great. But, you know, helping people out who just have questions or how do I do this or what way, what approach would you take or how would you recommend things? Um, you know, I constantly today I was talking to two of my longtime friends out there just kind of thinking out loud in terms of how we could help support each other in, in ways that, um, you know, to make make the marketplace better. Because it's, you know, as I always say, sports is a it's a big city, but it's a small town. And everybody really, really works together, even your competition, believe it or not. Um, you still work together because if there's things that I can't do, I can't handle, then pass it on to them and let them kind of help continue that progress, especially as we're dealing with the pivot happening now in sports technology uh, in the industry. So that's uh, that's kind of the best way to that we as TPT Hub want to try to help support the events world. Well, I would encourage all of the listeners of this podcast or viewers to follow Derek on LinkedIn and TPT Hub, not just because he's putting great content out there, the, th the things I learned, and you can see the things that they are doing to help events, but also, uh, you know, if you are hosting events or you are planning events, uh, Derek is always pushing those events. And if there are opportunities to work in this space on different events, Derek, you post on LinkedIn, hey, there's an opportunity to work at this organizing committee or work for this event here. So if you are mm -hmm. interested in working in this space, particularly in the area of transport, Derek is always reposting those things. And mm -hmm. so you become aware of what's uh, what's out there. And also for the event organizers, I mean, you're doing them a service too, because you're publishing their need and saying, hey, uh, they've got a need for a, a, a venue uh, transport manager at XYZ. Yep event uh so you know go apply so you know, it's coming back to what you talked about early on in our conversation today derek whereas uh, you were taught from an early age to pay it forward and and that's what you've been doing on these uh you know at least on linkedin and and so i would encourage anybody who is involved in this space whether you are uh looking at a career in this space or whether you're an event and you are find, trying to find talent in this space or you're looking for a solution uh, to help you uh, deliver transport effectively in your event, uh, Derek and TPT Hub are absolutely the way to go. So, Derek, uh, thank you so much for taking, well, well over an hour. And we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes here on tape, uh, sharing all these stories. For me, it just went by like that. And I can't believe yeah. it's gone uh, yeah. it went by so quickly. And I know we just scratched the surface because you've got so many amazing stories uh, yeah. throughout your long and illustrious career. I appreciate you taking this time with us. And listeners and viewers, thank you for spending time with us as well. Uh, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Derek, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.